Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again this morning, Lord, to worship your name, worship your holy name. Worship you, Lord, as the sovereign king who sits on the throne, who does whatever is good in his own sight. And yet, Lord, you were pleased to serve us in Christ, to choose us in Christ, and to call us by your gospel, that we may have forgiveness of sins, that we may have life in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your gospel of grace. For we ourselves could never do anything that was worthy of eternal life, but only worthy of death. And so we thank you, Lord, for your grace in Christ Jesus to justify us freely. And that is without cause, for your namesake and for the sake of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this teaching and we ask for help to talk about Christ, for you alone can preach Christ. So help me, Jesus, to talk about you. May you help your people to see you lifted up in your scriptures. Because they testify of you and they testify of your righteousness. We pray and thank you in your precious name. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 to 10. So essentially just the whole chapter. Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 to 10. Then he showed me. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who he has chosen in Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plugged from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filth garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, And the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and if you keep my command, then you shall also judge my house. And likewise have charge of my courts. I'll give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, For they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, Everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine 
and under his fig tree, the word of the Lord. Our sermon title is Take Away the Filthy Garments. Take away the filthy garments from him. And as I always like to do, I'm going to give other multiple titles. A filthy garment problem. A filthy garment problem. Or the original title that I've given this was, I have removed your iniquity from you. I have removed your iniquity from you. And then the last title is The Robes of Vindication. The Robes of Vindication. So we were supposed to have two sermons today. But as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of my high school science teacher. His reputation was, if you are caught in trouble... Do you want to get four lashings or one? And those who were in the know realized that you were better off getting the four. Because the one was so hard that it was more painful than receiving the four. And that means since we don't have the two, this one is going to be so hard. <laughs> Praise the Lord. This is the Lord's table. It's communion. And we teach the gospel. We teach the gospel even when we don't have communion. But when we have communion, strictly we have to preach the gospel. And our teaching is for people who are interested in Christ. Who have interest in the person and work of Christ. Who know that Christ is all and they are only complete in him and nobody else. So Jesus Christ is our only interest and is our chief interest. And I purpose for you to see his glory in his work of salvation. In his work of saving you from your sins. So preaching Christ is our chief concern. Because everything else that is not Christ profits nothing and is just laying a foundation, a different foundation that does not profit. We have to preach Christ and his gospel and you have to believe in Christ and his gospel. We cannot play with the work of the Lord because that is foolishness. And if Jesus is boring to anybody, there's nothing else that can be done to excite them. There's nothing else that can be done for them to see the glory of Christ and the beauty of the hope that God has given us in him. They need to be born again to see the beauty of Christ. In this book of Zechariah, we have the whole gospel. All of it. It's in there. And we're going to talk about it. Until you see it. <laughs> Zechariah was a prophet during the reign of Darius, the Persian king, who ruled from about 
522-486 BC. He was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai, who together with Zerubbabel, the governor, were part of the entourage that had come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple that had been destroyed earlier by the Babylonians. They came back as God's fulfillment of the 150-year prophecy that God made through Isaiah in Isaiah 44, verses 24 to 28. And in this prophecy, God promised the release of his people from Babylonian captivity, and he said that Cyrus, the Persian king, was the one who was going to release them and bring them back to Jerusalem. And God prophesied this before Cyrus was even born. And when Babylon was still the greatest power, and yet when Cyrus was born and became the king of Persia, he conquered the Medes, and he was the king of the Middle Persian. So the Jews have returned to Jerusalem from captivity. And it is then that Zechariah the prophet had this vision and many others. The Jews have had problems rebuilding so far. There was resistance to their work by the Samaritans and the local inhabitants. And also the Jews had been dragging their feet to finish the Lord's work. And of course, this was fueled by the resistance that they were having. And of course, laziness. They are just being lazy. According to the prophet Haggai, the Jews were neglecting the work that the Lord had set them to do because they were set free to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And in Haggai 1, verses 1 to 5, the prophet says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, So you see, Joshua is mentioned here in the book of Haggai. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus said the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So God is saying, in spite of the resistance that you are having from your enemies, don't try to read what is happening to say it's not the time to build the temple. Forget your circumstances and go on the business of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. So this is where we are. So in chapter 3 of Zechariah, the prophet has recorded for us his fourth vision 
out of a total of eight visions. There are eight visions in this chapter. I mean, in this, in this book. The first two visions are in chapter one. The first vision is from chapter one, verses one to six. And it is God's call to Israel to repentance. And then the second vision is from Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 to 18. Okay? And in this vision, Zechariah meets with this angel of the Lord who is riding on a horse by the metal trees. And this angel of the Lord is interceding for Jerusalem and is asking God to relent from his anger towards Jerusalem and God hears the supplications of this angel and he promises to return to Jerusalem with mercy. So in chapter 2, we have the third vision. We have the vision of the surveyor with the measuring line. There's a man there or an angel who had a measuring line. And the angel spoke to Zechariah and said, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a city without walls. That is a city that has no fences to defend it against their enemies. For the Lord said in Zechariah 2.5, For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I'll be the glory in her midst. So God promises to be the one who guards the city of Jerusalem. And so that takes us to the fourth vision in chapter 3. And for us to understand what is going on, we need to see the setting and the parties or characters that were involved in this vision. The identity of the actors was given and also their theological significance. And unlike the previous three visions, there are in this vision no questions that were asked by Zechariah. If you go and read the chapter, in the previous visions, Zechariah was asking, what does this mean? And then the angel that he was talking to would give interpretation. But in this particular vision, Zechariah is just looking and hearing and recording what he was shown. So... The participants in this story, in this vision, were Zechariah, who saw the vision, the angel of the Lord, the devil, Satan, Joshua the high priest, and the attending angels, those who stood before Joshua, according to verse 4. So Joshua is the high priest during this time of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And Zechariah the prophet has a vision of him standing before the angel of the Lord being accused of the devil and will now work the vision and the theology and the gospel. And I pray that it will be as brilliant as I think God has given it to me. Verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Joshua was standing. What does that mean? 
standing conveys the work of one who was a high priest. For the high priest ministered to God on behalf of his people standing. Standing. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand, hear that, to stand before the Lord to do what? To minister to him and to bless in his name to this day. Second Chronicles 29 verse 11. Second Chronicles 29 verse 11. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. And so to stand before the Lord means one is a high priest who ministers before the Lord. But there are four kinds of standing that are mentioned in this story. There's the standing of the high priest as a minister and intercessor and mediator for his people before God. We have the standing of the angel of the Lord as the mediator and advocate of Joshua. We have the standing of the devil as the accuser of the brethren before God. Psalm 109 verse 1. Psalm 109 verse 1. Set a wicked man over him. And let an accuser stand at his right hand. So the devil is standing where? He's standing at the right hand of Joshua accusing him. And finally, there's the standing of one who is being accused. When one is being accused in court, they don't get accused sitting now. They stand up. Joshua is being accused of the devil. So he also is standing in that regard. So there are four kinds of standing here that have very important theological understanding. We have the standing, we have the two standings that are priestly. Two standings that are priestly. Joshua the high priest and Jesus the intercessor, our high priest. And the other two that are judicial. That are judicial. And judicial means there is a court. There is a judge. There is an inquiry. And there are accusations being made. And so the setting has the accuser who seeks to get someone condemned. And we have the defense side that seeks acquittal. And we have the judge who is hearing and is weighing the charges and arguments and is pronouncing his judgment. So Satan is the one standing on the right side of Joshua, 
accusing him before the Lord. But as I said, the whole story is both judicial and priestly. It is judicial because there are charges being pressed and a conviction is being sought by the devil. But it is also judicial and priestly in that the angel of the Lord intercedes as the high priest and advocate and judge and declares Joshua to not be guilty. Joshua stands accused of his sin personally and on behalf of Jerusalem, that is Israel, the people that he ministered on behalf of before God. We are not specifically told of the charge that Joshua was being accused of, but it could be that all the opposition and the difficulties that the Jews were having constructing the temple was being instigated by the devil. And the devil now has incriminating evidence against God's people to say, see, I told you these people don't care for nothing. They are sinners. Destroy them. Look, they are not building your temple. So he seeks to get them destroyed And that is his purpose. Verse 2. But the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plugged from the fire? I need you to pay attention to your Bible and how it's translated there. The Lord is in capital letters. That is Yahweh. That's Jehovah. That's God's covenant name. His name of covenantal faithfulness. Apparently, this angel of the Lord is not just an angel. He is the Lord God himself. And yet he is separate from the Lord. And all the Lords are capitalized. L-O-R-D. He is the angel of the Lord who is also Lord, but is separate from the Lord. And that speaks to God being more than just one person. But three persons that are one, but the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here in this vision. This angel of the Lord who is Lord speaks for And on behalf of the Lord, (laughs) he is the Logos. He is the word of God. John 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. That is the identity of the angel of the Lord. And that is why you see that angel is capitalized. It's Christ Jesus. So this angel of the Lord who is God rebukes the devil on behalf of God the Father. For he says the words of the Father and says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
and he appeals to the Lord as the one who chose Jerusalem. Who does the work of election according to Ephesians? It's God the Father who chooses. But what was the problem? What was the problem? Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now this is the problem that Joshua had. He forgot to wear his Sunday best when he came to church. <laughs> he forgot to pick up his clean clothes at the dry cleaner on Friday. Joshua, we are told, was wearing filthy garments and clean clothes, stinky clothes, and was standing before the angel of the Lord. Joshua should not have been standing before the Lord with filthy clothes. According to the Levitical law, the high priest was supposed to wear clean linen garments, holy garments, when they came to minister before the Lord. So how is it that Joshua is seen in this vision wearing filthy garments like the washer and dryer had died on him? The filthy garments were just a type of sin. The filthy garments represented the sin that was on Joshua and not only individually, but also the collective sins of his people, Jerusalem. Joshua is loaded up with sin. And this is the reason why the devil thinks he has a good case to get both Joshua and Jerusalem condemned. But why? Because he is the accuser of the brethren. That is what he does. So the devil actually has a strong and good case against Joshua. And it should be very easy to prosecute this one. The devil is the prosecutor. It should be very easy for him to get conviction and judgment. Joshua has blood on his hands. Everybody can see it. This has to be a slam dunk. <laughs> but not too fast. Not too fast. Verse 4. The intercession by the angel of the Lord. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I'll clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And the scripture says, so they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord on hearing these accusations spoke to those who stood before him. That is the angels who minister to the Lord. The angels are ministering spirits to those who shall receive salvation, according to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1. So the Lord speaks to the angels and says, I so agree with Satan, get Joshua and throw him in jail, for surely he is a guilty man. No. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ said, take away the filthy garments from him. The Lord instructed that the filthy garments 
be immediately be removed from Joshua. And he said to Joshua, see Joshua, see what I've done. I have removed your iniquity from you and I'll clothe you with rich robes. So the Lord removed the iniquity, the sin from Joshua by the removal of the garments. It is the Lord who removes iniquity. It is the Lord alone who commanded and accomplished it, not Joshua's free will. The Lord did not ask for Joshua to make a decision. Hey, Joshua, do you want me to remove your feet with the garments? <laughs> See the connection between the taking of Joshua's filthy garments, the taking off of Joshua's filthy garments, and the pronouncement or declaration by the Lord. I have removed your iniquity from you. These statements are one statement. They are saying the same thing. They explain each other. To remove the filthy garments is to remove the sin on the person wearing the garment. But the Lord did not just stop there. The Lord did not just remove the garments. He also said to Joshua, See, I will also, on top of removing the filthy garments, I will also clothe you. With robes. No. Not just robes. Rich robes. Rich robes. So Joshua has not only had his filthy garments removed, that is his sins removed, but he also has had a change of clothes. And he did not get his new clothes on sale at Macy's. <laughs> oh, Walmart. <laughs> These clothes were described by the Lord as rich robes. Rich robes. What does that mean? And what is happening? Isaiah 61 verse 10. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah, he speaks of the joy of God's redeemed remnant on account of being covered with the robe of righteousness. And it seems Joshua also has been clothed with the garments of salvation. Joshua is supposed to be condemned and justly so. He has filled the clothes to prove his just condemnation. Your condemnation is just. You are wearing your filthy clothes outside Christ. And it is easy to prove your unrighteousness before God. You wear your unrighteousness like a garment. <laughs> and it is easy to see, even the devil knows it, even the devil sees it. But something remarkable happens. Joshua is not condemned in spite of his sin. Joshua is not condemned and so he rejoices in his God 
for he has clothed him with the garments of salvation. Joshua has been covered with the robes of righteousness. And that is what the rich robes meant. That is what the rich robes signified. They meant being covered by the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. The robe of righteousness can also be translated and understood as the robe of vindication. The robe of vindication. Because the Lord has vindicated you from the judgment of condemnation. And we pray, and I pray that the Lord would remove the filthy garments that you and I have on and cover us with the robe of vindication. And that is the kind of prayer that is according to God's will. To pray and say, Lord Jesus, may you clothe me, may you cover me with the robes of vindication. That is real prayer. But I don't want you to miss the joy of God's remnant people in Isaiah 61. Isaiah says, God's people shall greatly rejoice in the Lord. For what reason? Many in the church would say, because my ducks are in a row. (laughs) Many will say, because their marriages are doing well, work is well, kids are doing well, and these are all things to be thankful for. But we have to rise above the perishing things. Isaiah says, God's people have joy in that their sin has been removed and have been vindicated as righteous by God. They wear the robe of vindication. In other words, their joy is in the gospel. And yet how many who call themselves Christians do not rejoice in the Lord for his gospel and his righteousness. They think the gospel is for vindicating their own self-made programs. But it is because they don't understand they have a garment problem. Not mismatched clothes and shoes. But they don't understand what kind of garments they are wearing. They don't understand what they have on. They think the problem they have is not washing dishes. Cleaning the house and low self-esteem, like in our culture. (laughs) Such a huge problem. Low self-esteem. The problem is not that you are not caught up on your laundry, on your chores, on your dishes. Or that you are not cute. You see, our culture celebrates cuteness as godly righteousness. Oh, he is so cute. When he dies, he goes to heaven. Your real problem remains even all your dishes and laundry and your cuteness are there. You still have filthy garments on. You have a filthy garments problem and you have a devil problem and a condemnation problem. Satan justly accuses you and you need Jesus or you are condemned. Because you see, Joshua is only filthy Because the law of God says he is a sinner. You need someone to remove your filthy garments for you and from you. 
someone who is not you to remove the filthy garments on your behalf and from you. And see, in this vision, it is Jesus, the angel of the Lord, who removed the filthy garments from Joshua. Why? Because Joshua could not remove his own sin. The garments of sin cannot be removed from you by taking a warm shower or a bubble bath. The garments of sin cannot be removed without death, without proper atonement. If you have to be preserved, if you have to be saved, you need a filthy garment remover. You have anthrax. You know the time that we're having problems with people sending out anthrax. If you have to deal with anthrax, you have to have someone who is trained, who has the equipment to deal with it. Otherwise, they're going to spread it. And your own attempt to remove your sin only spreads it. You need one who is appointed by God, one who is qualified by God to do this work, and it is Christ Jesus. So who is a Christian then? I thought would have an understanding of who is a Christian given what is portrayed in this story. A Christian then is one who has found a filthy garment remover. <laughs> and they rejoice not in their own righteousness, but in the robes of righteousness that have been bestowed on them by Christ Jesus. They glory in the Lord, they glory in the gospel of grace. But far too many Christians want to help Jesus to take off their own filthy garments. They say they can do the law. No, the law only reveals that you have dirty garments on, but it does not help to get them removed. The law only shows that you are stinky and you are dirty and you can't clean yourself up and that you are so in trouble with God. You are in so much trouble. It is the gospel alone that sees the sorry state of your filthiness changes your old garments, washes you clean, and gives you new garments. It's only the gospel that puts off the sin and covers with righteousness. When people say you choose Christ or they chose Christ and invited him to take off their filthy garments, they don't know what they're talking about. You loved your old clothes and did not want them removed from you. Can someone testify? You love the warmth of sin. Joshua did not invite Jesus to remove his filthy garments. Jesus freely, Jesus freely, that is without cause, without any merit on the part of Joshua, removed the filthy garments and covered him with his own rich robes. What is that saying? That is saying salvation. This is a picture of salvation. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. It is by grace alone, which means God alone does it. 
without your help or suggestion. Jesus benefited nothing from getting Joshua acquitted. But he freely justified him. He freely got Joshua acquitted. So the picture that we have in this vision is a picture of justification. It's a picture of how a sinner who is clothed in filthy garments get justified by God. Joshua was justified in the removal of his garments and the putting on of the rich robes. What is justification? If we don't have a gospel that answers justification, then we have no gospel. What is justification? The gospel was given to answer this most important question. How shall I remove the condemnation that is on me because of my filthy garments? Filthy garments bring condemnation. And that's the problem. That's the issue. There's no other issue that the gospel is solving for you other than this filthy garment problem and the condemnation that comes from it. If you could find some other way to make yourself clean before God, then you would need Christ. You would not need Jesus. Justification is the legal act, a sovereign act of God. Which means, when we say sovereign, it means it comes from God's own good pleasure. His own will, by which he acquits a sinner. A sinner who was condemned to die, condemned to die because they broke his law. Condemned to die because of sin, condemned to die because of the filthy garments that they have on, they failed to fulfill in themselves, by themselves, the obedience that the law of God requires. But God, <laughs> I like that transition, but God, by his grace, that is freely, as a gift, without cause, without any cause in the person being served, does not account their sin to them. He does not make them liable for the sin that they committed, not because of their own righteousness or anything done by them or in them, but on account of the righteousness of Christ alone. On account of the righteousness of Christ alone is such a person justified and accepted by God. And it is by the righteousness of Christ alone who fulfilled on their behalf as their substitute what the law of God demanded of them. But see this. The sinner is not only forgiven of sin. Because if your sin is just forgiven, you're still in trouble. But they are also credited with the righteousness of Christ as their own. So there's a twofold nature to justification. You have the forgiveness of sins and the giving of righteousness. The law of God demands, always demands perfect obedience. 
Because God is perfect. Otherwise, it is not a law. And that is why if you do one part of the law, you are liable to do the whole law. But when it is broken, it demands death. When the law of God is broken, it demands death. And you can't pick and choose what part of the law you like to do. You don't do that. Because the law requires complete obedience to everything that it stands for. And it comes as one unit. But when you break the law, the law says, On the day that you shall eat of this fruit, you shall surely live. <laughs> no. On the day that you shall eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And it also says, the soul that sins must die. And so the sinner owes God both obedience and death. And this is the part that some people are not understanding about the gospel. The law demands obedience. But when you break it, it demands death. So now, because you have broken it, it demands two things from you. It demands both death and obedience, if you have to live. It demands death because we were already constituted sinners in Adam's disobedience. But death does not remove the first demand of the law, which is obedience. And so Jesus Christ had to first come and obey the law, fulfill the law in his life, and then pay for the demand of death on the cross. So the death of Christ was the final transaction of the Lord's obedience. And so he obeyed even to the point of death according to Philippians 2. To the point of death on the cross, which means his whole life was a life of obedience. Which obedience culminated in his death on the cross. And because death was the final and ultimate work, this is the center and the highest point of the glory of the work of Jesus Christ. The cross brackets the obedience of Christ that began in his incarnation. It is the highest point of his obedience, the shedding of his own blood. And this is where the payment of sin was done. The other requirement of death was fulfilled. The curse of the law was removed on the cross. The wrath of God was poured on the cross and was satisfied on the cross. The law was nailed on the cross. You can't put away the law until you give it everything that it requires. The law requires obedience. It requires death for one who is already a sinner. And Christ gives the law everything that the law wants. And so he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. That is the glorification of Christ. That is the only way that he could remove the law by nailing it on the cross. The law still required you to perfectly love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
The law requires that. If you have to come before God, the law requires that you have done this perfectly. The law did not just demand death for not obeying it. It demanded perfect obedience and fulfillment and perfect righteousness. You can't come before God unless you are perfect as God is perfect. And in Christ Jesus, God has made us perfect. And that is why Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them in his life and his death. Let's keep working this. But it's in here, in the story. We're going to connect it. Jesus could not be perfect sacrifice if he had not already perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus could not be perfect sacrifice if he had not already perfectly obeyed the law. And so the law had to be obeyed perfectly before the payment of sin on the cross. And if the payment on the cross was going to be complete and accepted. He could not die first and then try to do the law. Jesus could not die and then resurrect and try to do the law. The ordering is very critical to salvation. If we reverse the ordering, we have a different gospel that does not save. The law, listen to this, was for inspecting and qualifying him to be the spotless lamb of God according to his flesh. And that is why he was born of a woman and under the law that he may be subject to the law. As God, he was not subject to the law. He had to be born as a man that he may be subject to the law. Under the old covenant, the animal sacrifices and the priests who offered them had to be physically inspected for blemishes. Leviticus 21, 16 to 21. You have to hear this. Leviticus 21, 16 to 21. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame who has a mad face or any limp too long. Uh-oh. That would disqualify everybody. A man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf. Or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. No man, verse 21, no man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. So this is the requirement of the high priest. And the same requirement was required of the sacrifice. So how does this Relate to Jesus. Jesus too had to be inspected for blemishes and fitness as both sacrifice and high priest. But not with a magnifying glass to see if he had any pimples. No, Jesus had to be inspected by the law of God. He had to be inspected 
by the law of God and that is why he was tempted continuously and in all things but was without sin. So for justification to be complete and to be understood correctly, it has to be seen as more than paying for the sins that were committed. Just paying for the sins is not enough for salvation because salvation involves many things. There has to be. There has to be the fulfillment of the law, the obedience and the death, given where you were. The first Adam had not broken anything, and yet he still was not righteous as to end life. He still needed to be clothed with another righteousness if he ever had to see life. So there has to be above And beyond the forgiveness of sins, there has to be an imputation of righteousness, a positive righteousness, a clothing of such who has been forgiven. Otherwise, they remain naked and cold. And so how has this been taught in the Bible? But this has been taught in the Bible. In the Old Testament, when the high priest was done offering a sacrifice, a burnt offering, they did two things. Leviticus 6. Verses 8 to 11. Leviticus 6, verse 8 to 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, And his linen trousers he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar and he shall put them beside the altar. Verse 11. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments. Take off and putting on. And carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. So that was the formula for the high priest. You take off. And then you put on. With Joshua, you take off and you put on. They removed the garments that they had on when they made the sacrifice. Signifying the removal of the sin that necessitated the sacrifice. The forgiveness or pardon of sin. And they also had to change their clothes And wear new clothes, which signified that they now carried a new legal status before God. They now have a status that is different from what they had before the sacrifice had been made. But as you read the Old Testament, if it was not the day of atonement, like in Leviticus 16, the sacrifice was not necessarily made for the high priest because on the day of atonement the high priest had to make a sacrifice first for himself and then for the sins of the people but if it was just someone who had sinned and they came to the high priest and the high priest to make atonement on their behalf the high priest would take the sacrifice and would offer the sacrifice on behalf of that person so that whatever happened to the high priest whatever 
the high priest did was reckoned to the person who had been guilty. So the change of clothes by the high priest represented the forgiveness of sins and the imputed righteousness that came from that work of atonement. And all this was accounted to the sinner. God legally accounted this work of atonement by the high priest to the one for whom the atonement had been made. And so justification is not just declaring someone is not guilty. The act involves more than the forgiveness of sins. That is free pardon. It also involves the imputation of righteousness. So you are not just acquitted, but you are also given a righteousness. So you hear in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, it says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, you see the second aspect of justification, and by him, Everyone who believes is justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Could not be justified by the law of Moses. So the law of Moses does not justify anybody. (laughs) Could not be justified. And because God has forgiven your sin and imputed the righteousness of Christ to you, who then shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? It is God who justifies. And he justifies by grace on account of election by the merits of Christ. Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So election is very important in justification. It was important in Joshua's justification. You can't preach the gospel without election. And you can't have a gospel that justifies without Christ being the God-man who mediates his righteousness on behalf of his elect. And election, election is not based and cannot be based on the one who is wearing filthy garments, like what is being taught in a lot of churches there. None has rich robes by themselves as to attract God's attention. So God could not have chosen and justified anyone in Christ based on foreseen faith or goodness. God did not look through the telescope of time and see who would come and choose Jesus and make him Lord and Savior. It is not true and it's just the human flesh. Again, saying, we will not let this man to rule over us. But that is the gospel that is being taught and believed in many of these places that are open on Sunday. Not at Bob Evans, they are open on Sunday too. So look again at how Joshua was acquitted. That is justified. Joshua was justified freely. That is without cause. That is the meaning of freely. It means without cause. Justification before God has nothing to do 
with the performance of the one being justified. The scriptures say in Romans 4, 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Joshua did not work to be justified, for his garments were filthy, and no good work could have come from him. Sister Tamar did not work, but only believed that the signet ring, the cord, and the staff of Judah were enough for her righteousness. And indeed, when the time came, it was so. She was freely justified because she believed that the righteousness that was in her hand was enough for her, and that was gospel faith. And that is the only way that God justifies sinners. You need to be freely justified because you are very bad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say that. That's not good for your self-esteem. You need to be freely justified because of who you are and because of who God is. But when you have been justified, God says, Now, shape up. I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. Why did Jesus say, Go and sin no more? Because you have been justified. If you are justified before God legally, you can't sin anymore. If you have been justified, before God. Legally, you can't sin anymore. There's no more law for you to break. Justification is a permanent legal ruling by God. It's permanent. One is not constantly being justified and unjustified and being justified every time that they eat Cheerios or chicken nuggets without praying. Go and sin no more does not mean that you are never going to sin again. Or that your justification is now dependent on your performance or that you maintain it. If that were the case, none will be saved who come to faith. In the court of heaven, we are talking about the court of heaven, not the court of men. In the court of heaven, a justified person is not considered a sinner anymore even though they still sin, even though they still deal with sin. Their sin does not condemn them because in God's court, your case has already been tried and settled. Your case was tried and settled where? In your representative. As the sins of Jerusalem were tried and settled where? In their representative in the person of Joshua. The acquittal of Joshua, the acquittal of Joshua was the acquittal of all those who were in him. Am I telling the truth? And so you were tried and acquitted on the cross in Christ. If Christ was acquitted, then that was your acquittal. So now you by faith are wearing the garments of righteousness, the rich robes. What matters in salvation is how God sees you. 
and not what you or other people see you. The gospel is a scandal. It's truly a scandal because it acquits the wicked that everybody sees and agrees that is a sinner. But how God sees you is exactly how things are. And God sees you through the blood of Christ and he sees you as always righteous and as always pleasing to him. And because he is pleased by his son. But how was Joshua justified? According to Apostle Paul, in Romans 3.24, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Joshua was justified freely. That is without cause. But you can't have justification without the blood redemption. Without the redemption that comes with the blood. Without a ransom payment in the form of death. So hear the word of the Lord. Joshua 3 verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. What is the stone that has been laid before Joshua that is seven eyes. Seven eyes are the seven eyes of God. That is perfect vision. That is perfect knowledge. That is omniscience. That's what the seven eyes are for. That is being God. And this attribute of God is said to be on this stone. And this is the stone of stumbling. The rock of offense. That is Christ. The iniquity of Joshua is removed in this stone. How? The angel of the Lord says, and I'll remove the iniquity of that land, Jerusalem, in one day. How? And where? How do you remove iniquity in one day? On the cross. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That is the one day on the cross. Jesus raised on the cross. That's how the iniquity of Joshua was removed. So sin was removed in the death of Christ on the cross. And that is where all his people who were in him were justified. They were set free on the death of the high priest whose name also happened. And God was so lucky to be Joshua. The same high priest, his name also was Joshua. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus' name. Yeshua. Because without death, there's no remission of sin. So you need the death of one whose name is Joshua if sin has to be removed. We want to talk about the indicative and imperative as we close our teaching because it's there in this vision it's, and it's important for us to understand this I want to draw your attention back to verse 7 of Joshua 3 verse 7 says that says the Lord of hosts if you walk in my ways and if you keep my command then you shall also judge my house 
and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. So the angel of the Lord, in the wake of what has just transpired, gives instruction to Joshua. He gives commands to Joshua and says to Joshua, if you walk in my ways and will keep my command, I will bless you and give you places and privilege and the privilege and access to me and the angels that are here. That is to serve him as the angels do. But let us work some understanding. I want you to see the ordering of these statements in the larger context of the story. The command for Joshua to walk in the way and the blessing that would follow is not what established his forgiveness. Jesus did not say, if you walk in my way, then I will remove your filthy garments and cover you with my rich robes. No, Jesus did not condition the justification of Joshua and those in him on his performance or lack of performance. Justification was graciously given to Joshua apart from any merit, apart from Joshua following any of the commands. The justification of Joshua happened outside any commands that were later issued. And we see this teaching in the New Testament. You are not justified because you obeyed. You obey because you are justified. Justification always precedes the commands. Always. And a lot of preachers don't understand that. And that is how they turn the gospel into a gospel of works instead of a gospel of grace. Okay, But see this. See what Jesus said to Joshua as the reason why the devil could not bring a charge against Joshua. Jesus, the angel of the Lord said, verse 2, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plugged from the fire? According to Jesus, the reason why charges against Joshua could not stick was because God had chosen Jerusalem. That was his reason. And there was no other reason. I chose him. If you're not happy with that, that's your problem. Joshua's acquittal was found in God's election according to grace, as I have said. Jesus says, <laughs> forget it, Satan. <laughs> this one is mine. I chose him and I plugged him out of the fire of condemnation. And the devil never answered back. Was shut up. Election, the very doctrine that the church world hates is the doctrine that Jesus used to get Joshua and Jerusalem acquitted of sin. And if you are ever going to get acquitted, it shall only be by the Lord making intercession on your behalf and invoking the same doctrine. He or she is my elect. She is my chosen one. Leave her alone. Her sin is none of your business. <laughs> oh, Lord of mercy. See that Jesus did not 
deny the charges that were leveled against Joshua. He never denied them. He just ignored them. And see that Joshua didn't even try to defend himself. For the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteous advocate, stood up for him and defended him. And he won. So be quiet when you get to him. Don't try to be smart. He knows your case better than you. And there's better arguments than you have. Don't raise your hind legs and say, but I chose you. Remember Jesus, I invited you into my heart. And I made you Lord and Savior. <laughs> this is going to cause you a lot of trouble. But let us speak again to Joshua. That we may have a proper understanding of what is happening. I've already alluded to most of what I'm going to say. But this is just for emphasis. Joshua was a high priest of Israel. And so he represented not just himself, but all his people who were in him. And so when the filthy garments were removed from Joshua, they were also removed from the people that were in him, the people that he represented. And so if Joshua, their substitute and representative, was forgiven and justified, they too were forgiven and justified in him. Joshua was a type of Christ. And as I said, Jesus' name is also Joshua. So Joshua standing to be accused is Jesus being accused because of our sin that had been put on him. But he, unlike Joshua, had no sins of his own. Our sins have been charged on Christ. And so he has to face condemnation. And he did. And he paid for our sins. And he removed the iniquity that was on him because of our sins in one day on Mount Calvary. And so Jesus Christ was condemned for our sins, but was raised because of our justification. His resurrection then was God saying, the transaction of salvation for all those who were in you, for all those who were in him, had been accepted. And therefore, there's now no condemnation for all those who are in him. Who are in Christ Jesus. And so then, regeneration, regeneration is God the Holy Spirit coming with a message to you that says, I have removed your iniquity from you. And I have clothed you with the rich robes of vindication. The robes of my righteousness that is by faith alone. That is the purpose of faith. That is the chief concern of faith to bring you the message, the glad tidings that God in Christ has removed the iniquity from you. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. And that is how we remember the Lord, this one who stood on our behalf, this one who pronounced us as righteous, this one who covered us with his rich robes, this one who robbed us with his garments of vindication. Praise the Lord.
Amen.